Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Damien Lapoyad. It's April 25th, uh, 2023. We're at Seven Springs Vineyard. Uh, Damien, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. First question to get started is why wine? (sighs) Why wine? Um, I think wine has always kind of been in the background of my life. You know, I grew up in, I was born and raised in St. Helena, California, so kind of in the heart of the Napa Valley. my father's always, well, I started with, I guess, one with my grandfather. My grandfather was a restaurateur who came um, from France and opened several restaurants with really amazing wine lists in San Francisco. And then uh, my father was his lifetime in the restaurant industry as well throughout San Francisco and the Napa Valley. My mother spent a lot of time working for wineries in uh, St. Helena area. She worked for Chateau Montalena for a long time. and. I still remember being a kid, kind of running around Chateau Montalena in the early nine, or sorry, late '90s, early 2000s, um, and you know some of the core memories and core smells of my childhood are the the caves and the cellars and that kind of distinctive old cellar um, smell that you can get from those old historic places. And um, you know, when I was a kid, I remember around September or August, there would always be this distinctive smell that I could never really, I never really like ventured too much to ask necessarily what it was, but it was like this funky smell in the valley. And I realized, you know, later in life that, oh, that's it's all of the hundreds of thousands of tons of uh, spent pumice being dumped out in the vineyards near my middle school and near, near my house. So it was always kind of, uh, it was there, but truth be told, as a kid, I'd. I never really thought about it much as the wine industry. It was just so present in my life. And, uh, you know, I went to school with kids that are like part of this dynastic family and, and, you know, that are now running these amazing programs. And, um, yeah, so it was always there, but I never really had much interest in it. I just thought I came from a really special, beautiful place that was, um, you know, I would meet people from outside California and they'd be like, no way, you're from Napa Valley, that's amazing. I'm like, yeah, I mean, it's it's great, you know, it's really nice. And But for the most part, I was just interested in running around playing sports. That's really like all I cared about as a kid and, you know, schoolwork were secondary to sports. My parents used to like threaten to take away going to practice to get me to, to study and things like that. So I, I, was, I was in my own little world and not really too concerned about the wine industry. Um, when I left the Napa Valley after high school to go to University of Oregon, I was kind of ready to see something different. But when I came and visited U of O, I was, I felt like I was at home in a, in a weird way. It was another valley. It was green. It was lush. It would rain. It was, I always liked the seasons. You know, when I was a kid, it was a little bit more um, seasonal in the Napa Valley. There was a lot of rain. Seasons seemed to be more apparent. And, uh, when I came to Oregon, I just I fell in love with it, and uh, you know, on that visit to the college, I I knew immediately that I was going to college in Oregon somewhere, and U of O, the the 
Pac-12 football program definitely helped. <laughs> I probably should have gone to Oregon State knowing the career path that I would eventually take. But um, yeah, I could, so I went to University of Oregon and I kind of floundered trying to figure out what exact path I wanted to take. And um, once I turned 21, visits back home to visit family over you know winter and holiday breaks became more of opportunities to go wine tasting and go to restaurants and enjoy wine with my family. And um, I would go meet friends on the patio of Alpha Omega and things like that, where it just started to become more and more apparent why that valley was so special. And I started to come back and do more tasting around the valley in, in Oregon. And um, it kind of struck me that grapes don't really grow in ugly places, it seems. You know, everywhere I've seen grapes growing, it just seems to be immensely beautiful. And, and um, that just started to really catch me. And so when I was getting ready to graduate, I was studying uh, environmental sciences and kind of focusing on sustainable agriculture and I had to get a internship as a kind of a capstone to complete my degree. And first thing I did was contact the local vineyard um, just outside Eugene at Iris Vineyards. And I reached out to Aaron and his staff there and I was first kind of curious about working in the vineyard and they said, well, we kind of got a full-time staff but we're hiring right now for harvest interns. And I said, let's, let's do it, I'm in. Um, and that was kind of my first introduction to production. And that was very, very challenging. We had a really large harvest in 2014, was the first vintage. Um, and I was working because of my school and class schedule. I was working night shift for Iris. So I would you know, wake up eight o'clock, go to class at 10 till about two. And then I would head to Cottage Grove 5 p.m. to 5 a.m. shift. Uh, you know, sometimes we got out a little earlier, but that harvest was so so big that we we had a long long harvest there, and um, you know, get catch a couple hours of sleep and rinse and repeat. And um, I had so I was working for Aaron Lieberman at that time, who's a phenomenal winemaker and just really technical and and um, really great teacher. And I was also working for his cellar master at the time, Bruce Howard, who uh, has since moved away and left the industry, but he was an amazing uh, mentor to me at the time. He worked night shift with me, so we spent a lot of time together and he kind of, he came from a firefighting background and wasn't really a, a, a trained, like, um, professional in wine, but he was immensely knowledgeable about pumps and, and hoses and how to operate machinery and how to fix machinery and how to, how to move with um, a certain a pace and urgency in the cellar and how to be clean and, and make sure things are proper because our duty was always to process at night and then leave the place immaculate for the next team in the morning. And that was something that we kind of found ourselves, you know, we, we prided ourselves on that. and. Um, I just fell in love with it, you know, despite the rigorous schedule and the kind of intense workload that I had at that time. I had actually just met my partner as well, who, you know, I was like, uh, we had been dating for one month before I went into Harvest, so it was like, it was an intense moment in my life for sure, and I look back on it very fondly, and I think it was, it was, 
um, a pivotal moment that kind of a light bulb went off in my mind that, you know, this is something that really catches my attention. Wine is something that I can both express myself creatively, creatively and um, also with this like artistic sense mixed with science was really something that captured me. Um, a lot of intuition is involved while also being able to support your, your theories with science. Um, I was always very science-minded and, and really enjoyed chemistry as a kid. And um, yeah, those are kind of the things that just captured me. And after that first harvest, I was also working at a golf course in the meantime and outside Eugene. So I was like kind of back and forth and I pestered Bruce and Aaron to, you know, hey, I know you don't want to do that topping on Monday. You should let me come in and do that. And they, all right, come in and I just kind of pestered them, kept at them, let, let, me, let me come in and work even and you don't have to pay me. I just want to be a fly on the wall and kind of keep learning as much as I can while I work at the golf course. Whenever you need help, give me a call. I'd much rather be in the cellar with you guys. And after a while, they offered a full-time position and I kind of transitioned into working in the cellar, still part-time at the golf course. And I mean, that was like a beautiful balance after I graduated, it was like spend time in the cellar and then like golf as much as I wanted. I would work the morning shift at the golf course and I'd be off at noon. So I'd run out into the tee box with the old guys and play, play golf like every day. I think my girlfriend was pretty sick of my routine after a while, but uh, yeah, those are, those are really good times. And then um, that just solidified my love for it, really. Um, once I kind of started working full-time there, um, I just became more and more infatuated with it. I started spending more and more of my very little income on trying to find wines that were inspirational and, and kind of representations of what I strive to make. And um, in 2018, well, 2017 after, well, sorry, I'll go back a little bit. In 2016, I decided that I wanted to go back to school and take uh, UC Davis's kind of satellite program, their online two-year course for um, winemaking and kind of further my knowledge as best as I could from afar. Um, so I took that course and in 2017 after harvest I began to look at traveling and I went to Australia, to Western Australia, to Margaret River and worked seven months at Cape Mantel um, while finishing my school. Uh, that was another challenge. I was a glutton for punishment with finishing school for some reason. So, you know, classes were at oh gosh i think like four in the morning or something like that there and i'd try and catch them if i could and then scurry out the door at 6 a.m to crush a million tons of sub blanc and semillon so um yeah and from there on i just knew that that was going to be my life like i didn't want to do anything else um so wine was kind of an interesting background music to my life to begin with and then slowly in 2014 it just came to the forefront and just kind of serendipitously became what I was obsessed with. So you, obviously you mentioned the, the background music so you're not you didn't come into the wine industry unaware of wine but you mentioned not really much idea of production so yeah. tell me about that first year in production what was interesting to you about the work of production what was surprising to you about it what what hooked you into production? Yeah um I was fascinated with seeing a raw product like grapes from the vineyard, like a beautiful cluster of grapes come into the cellar and watch it transform into this totally unique 
beverage, alcohol. Obviously, I was a college kid at the time. I'm like, this is awesome. Like, but um, there was just like some magic around the transformation process, the fermentation process, but also the energy in the building, the people that you get to spend time with. You know, you become a family when you're that close and spend that many hours together and struggle with dealing with bosses or dealing with, you know, repetitive motions and, and fatigue and things like that. And you become really emboldened together and, and become more, um, United and the fact that we had international interns was always amazing to me. You know, it gave me an opportunity to make friends from all over the world that we share the same interest. Like I said, I was always obsessed with sports. Like I always wanted to be running around doing something physical and the idea of like being able to be artistic while also being like covered head to toe and juice and like, you know, I don't have any qualms with like sticking my arm elbow deep into a drain trap to clean it out. Like I just kind of grew up in the mud and I, I enjoyed it. So I, I, I really liked it. Cause I was always like, am I going to be in like construction or like what, what path am I going to find myself in when I like to do these other type of things? And I thought it was just a very beautiful way to kind of find my place and, and, um, production. Um, not a great uh, speaker or salesperson, so I just thought, you know, this is this is where I like to be in the kind of insular in the cellar and you know in the back corners, scurrying up barrels and getting to watch this thing progress from a very you know sweet, pretty thing like a cluster to like this really bizarre, massive funky grapes and giving off weird aromas that you can manipulate and blow off and 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 fix and and coax out of out of the raw ingredients um it was just kind of enchanting to me at the time so before you went back to school you you were on full time for a little bit tell me about that transition from kind of the harvest rush yeah. to being in the winery for the rest of the year the other, the other months of the year what was it like post harvest yeah, it's, it's, it was a bit of a shock. I think like a lot of people go through, you do like one or two harvests and you're like, oh, I know how this works. Like, it's pretty easy. You put the things in the things, you push them down, it makes the wine and put it into a barrel and put it away, right? And that's where it ends. But really you start to see the nuances of winemaking once you get past, you know, harvest time and into the new year really, you know, here in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, you start getting more into the chemistry side of things you start getting into the stability of wine you start getting into more um of the procedures that are true winemaking you know in my opinion which are clarification and stabilization i really think as winemakers are our, our, our jobs are to yes make you know transition the grape to a finished wine and build texture and things like that during harvest but really over the course of a full year, your primary job is clarify and stabilize. And, and um, I found that really interesting because it got me into the laboratory. They have a very nice laboratory in, in <clears throat> at Cottage Grove at Iris. And I spent a lot of time in there kind of figuring out some of the procedures, um, developing some SOPs. There's definitely a lot of cleaning and, and, and things like that. Like I think people underestimate how dirty the job is and how much cleaning you do in winemaking. It's probably 80% cleaning a lot of times. And 
not as romantic as people sometimes maybe maybe think the production side of things are but um, but yeah I, I just found it to be enthralling and and I found that the outside of the harvest rush you know there's this beautiful dichotomy in in winemaking where it's like this very slow season where you're very in you know slowly tracking things making sure things are going in the right direction giving it a very gentle touch and then and where it can be very insular and kind of solo and then there is this total flip side of of winemaking where it is like a mad dash all hands on deck bunch of people in the building running around trying to do as much as they possibly can in a very short period of time you know here in Oregon we deal with rains that kind of create that final moment of harvest so a lot of times it's working from forecasts and working it backwards how many tons do we have to get in before mm -hmm. before the rains hit and um, and all the nuances and picking decisions and things like that you start to see those after you kind of shed those first couple years of, of just pure harvest work and you see that there's a lot more nuances involved in making decisions it's not just go out and pick them when they're sweet it's there's a lot more to kind of um, making the decisions that shape the style of wine that you want to make so what prompted you to to go back to school to go to go to the uc davis program um it was kind of that transition into full-time work i was um shocked at how much more there was to know you know i came in at harvest 15 my second vintage like oh yeah i know I know the routine now, I know how to put thing, the, the grapes in the press and extract it and all this and then, you know, full-time work became pretty apparent to me that the, the, every door that you open in winemaking, there's a million things that you did not know about and there's a million different doors within that door that you need to open to understand even one-tenth of what we're doing. Um, so I, I felt the need to, A, I was, I was hungry to continue gaining knowledge. I felt I was still young and when I don't keep my brain busy with work or have somebody pushing me to, to study, uh, I feel like I get a little stagnant. So at that time I was kind of searching for somebody to push me to, to and, and give me a direction on where to go in the wine industry. It was so expansive, the amount of information out there. It was like I need to maybe hone it in first. And UC Davis I felt was a really great opportunity because they they teach you how to make very um, commercially viable wines. Um, so they really give you how to make very technical wines. And I felt like that was a really great place to start, how to make very clean, commercially viable wines through um, the UC Davis program. And then as I kind of completed that I, and experiencing different cellars and different winemaking um, kind of theologies, I realized that there are so many different ways to, to make wine and so many different ways that you can think about things and, and from the vineyard to the, the cellar that um, the, the foundation of having a very clean winemaking style that you can learn from UC Davis enables me to now start to broaden my approach and, and, and kind of peel back the layers that I feel maybe are unnecessary or maybe I, how can I coax out more interest in a wine or more nuance in a wine by maybe removing one aspect or, and, and, um, and that's been definitely something that I've, I've valued here at Eveningland, especially because Sashi has so many and Raj, they have so many um, 
contacts and friends and, and experiences in, in old world settings where they can draw from this expansive knowledge of how you know wines used to be made without the aid of science and technology and how, how um, traditional wines were feral and had have have a lot of so-called flaws that if you asked about native fermentations at UC Davis they might look at you funny and say well, what are you trying to make you know um, or, or some of the greatest wines I've ever had have some level of Britannomyces or VA in them and and it started to open my mind to kind of how can I use this core foundation that I learned at UC Davis and kind of build upon that or, or remove some of the protective layers or the, the um, safety nets that you learn are so necessary and kind of develop a, an idea of like what great winemaking is, maybe not clean winemaking. It's a really interesting way to put that. I like that. We're going to come back to that in a second. I'm curious, going to UC Davis or attending the program after already having some cellar work, uh, was there anything that struck you about what you were learning or what you were not learning in school that, that you thought was interesting given your experience? Yeah, like I said, the native fermentation thing was something that I was like really interested in. A lot of the wines that I had that were really inspiring to me, I would research them and they were spontaneously fermented, no added yeast, no added nutrients, things like that that were, that was eye-opening to me. You know, we, we inoculated almost everything. and. Once I became full-time at, at Iris and um, kind of took over as cellar master after I came back from Australia in 2018, uh, I was kind of given some flexibility to kind of try some things and Aaron was was very generous um, to, to allow me to kind of, hey, I'm really interested in kind of what a native fermentation tastes like next to, you know, uh, an inoculated one and can we split this, this parcel and experiment a little bit and he was very open to it and it opened my eyes because I thought the wines were dramatically different um, as did he I think we all learn from experiences like that and I, I, I value experimentation and, and um, yeah there's those are kind of the main things that stick out to me at that at that time because again I was still kind of learning and and everything I learned from UC Davis was like okay this is like this is the way to do it and then after I graduated and I was more exposed to different different ideas and different winemaking techniques I, I realized well there's not just one way and there's there's many 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 ways that you can achieve different goals and different um, levels of wine quality so tell us about the experience in Australia. You mentioned obviously doing it while you were still finishing school, which is a fun challenge. Uh, tell me about the winemaking style, the atmosphere, the, the place compared to what you knew before. Yeah, it was, Margaret River is an amazing place. It is like uh, only a few miles from the ocean. So it's very moderated by the Indian Ocean and the Southern Ocean and um, the wines from there are exceptional. It was my first kind of introduction to making Bordeaux varietals. Um, funny enough, I've never worked a harvest in Napa Valley. I've kind of always just been in love with Oregon and stuck with it. And I love Pinot and Chardonnay especially. And I love the farming and agriculture here. So I always stuck to that. So I had never really worked with Bordeaux varietals. So when I went to Australia, that was a new um, venture for me. And But Chardonnay I was fairly familiar with. We made some Chardonnay at, at Iris, and it was always one of my favorite projects. And the Chardonnay in Margaret River is exceptional. I was blown away 
at the uh, the quality of, of Chardonnay there. The Bordeaux varietals, I worked for Cape Mantel, which is owned by Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy. And um, you know, it's funny, I was, I was expecting to go and work with Australians. Like, so I, I had a, an intern in 2016 who lived in Margaret River, and he was always telling me, you gotta come out, you gotta come out, you gotta come out. So in 18, I was like, or you know, late 17, I called him and I was like, hey, I think I'm ready to come out there where should I work? Do you have any friends? And he said, I'm actually changing jobs right now, so you're gonna have to figure out where to work. But me and my wife just bought a new house and there's a kind of self-contained unit in the back. So bring your partner, come move out here and, and we'll set you up with a place to live. I said, well, that's, that's the hard part. So I can find somewhere to work. So I just started writing letters to, I, I went on like, James Holiday's like top 100 list of the best wineries in Western Australia and I just picked out the names that were doing things that I was interested in and I started trying to find and track down their emails as best as I possibly could and wrote individual cover letters to each of them and just sent my resume saying I really would love to come come work for you and if there's any space on your team for me I would love to join you um, and I got a few back, but Cape Mantel stuck out to me because they have a really rich history. And because they're owned by Louis, Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy, they actually have um, a ton of different holdings, right? So, and they're known for moving their winemakers around. And if you've worked for one LVMH property, they will happily send you to the next one for the next harvest if you have a good experience. So I was interested in maybe going to their their Chandon in the Andes or, you know, um, even working in Napa, I wasn't opposed to it, but they have a couple places in, you know, they have uh, Bodega Numantia in Spain I was interested in, a lot of really cool places that were, that were possible. And uh, so I thought, and, and we sold off everything to go to Australia. We were like, let's get rid of all of our furniture, let's go travel. Like, that, that was kind of the plan. And the harvest was very long. I was it was about five months of harvesting and then um, they kept me on board because I was just like I have a great place to live we have no where to be if you guys need help like keep me on and they kept me on for a couple months I took holiday to go to Bali uh, which is like kind of the it's like a short plane ride from Western Australia it's super easy and gorgeous so we we took off to go to Bali and um, while I was in the jungle of Bali, I got a call from Aaron Lieberman. I'm like, you know, on a on a crackly line, like here and Aaron, and he's like, "Hey, Bruce is taking off. He's gonna move out of the valley, and we're looking for a new cellar uh, master. Would you be interested?" And I was like, so thrown off at the time because I was like, "Like, where am I right now?" Let alone talking about coming back to the Lima Valley, which we just left and kind of had no plans on returning to. And you know, my partner and I kind of talked about it for a while, and I asked him to take a week or so to enjoy Bali and really not think about it too much. And uh, he was, he said, "Yeah." And uh, I reached back out, and after we discussed it, we kind of decided, you know, I could pinball around and stay kind of on the bottom rung as a harvest intern for 
who knows, a couple years before I find a solid gig or we determine where we want to be, or I could go back and kind of take that next step up the, the ladder and, and start my progression up and uh, see a different side of the, the business and be more leaned on for sales and marketing and things of that sort. So uh, after a while, I actually had an interview with them on it like on zoom and i was like there was like pigs and like kookaburras and all sorts of crazy animals going on around me in this jungled airbnb we were staying at and it was a bizarre experience but ended up deciding to head back and within uh we actually ended up getting we had a plane flight scheduled for two weeks after we got back and we ended up getting the volcano ex exploded while we were there the day before we were supposed to fly out so they canceled all flights for like four days so we were kind of just hanging out in bali on the beach waiting for them to tell us we could go and we were like getting concerned that it might be a while and we might miss our flight back and ended up making it back and immediately kind of went into harvest prep for for our uh for iris for vintage 18 and it was kind of a bang bang process but um yeah the the winemaking in australia sorry large tangent there but <laughs> the winemaking winemaking in australia was uh really eye-opening uh very different from pinot noir obviously with with the bordeaux varietals the winemaker who was in charge there at the time had just come from newton vineyards in, in napa valley in saint helena which i was very familiar with from my childhood it was right up the road from my house and um she was employing very much Napa winemaking wine style. So we were picking very late. Um, fruit would come in and we would, you know, extended macerate them for 70 days. And so it was a very long harvest and many, many tanks. So most of my days there were either dumping Sauve Blanc and Semillon into a destemmer and pushing it to, you know, pressing it, or it was spent doing pump overs, which was basically start on one end do the pump over by the time you get to the end go back to number one and start the pump overs all over again and that was a 12 12 hour shift um so it was a lot of ex like hyper extraction and um different very different winemaking than i was experienced to in the Miami valley with pinot noir after that experience i was not as interested in working with bordeaux varietals not because there's anything wrong with working with bordeaux varietals i love bordeaux and um but I felt that um, the wines are really difficult early. And I found that I was more interested in elegance and, and softer texture and balance. And I felt that the wines were very difficult to, to envision early in their life cycle. It was gonna take many, many, many years, and I had many bottles of old Cape Mantel that were phenomenal. But the early bottlings, 2017, 16, 15, were just so powerful, and I just didn't find much much elegance or enjoyment out of them until they had many years of in age, uh, in bottle to age. So I, I was kind of immediately like, I want to make something that's like approachable and, and friendly and elegant and has this really beautiful balance of power but elegance and this lithe texture that um, that I found in, in the Lima Valley. So that definitely played into into making the decision to come back to, to Oregon. And you mentioned coming back to Oregon and kind of starting to climb the ladder, taking taking that kind of full-time role. So tell me what that was like. What was that first kind of first harvest, first year like on a full-time role and, and having a having a kind of a continual role in the cellar? 
Yeah, it was uh, it was different because it very quickly became just like doing my work to becoming a manager, and that's a that's a tricky transition, um, especially when you're used to just kind of being the go man, like go go go. Like you have to pull the reins at that point and say, well, I need to delegate, and that's that was a struggle in that first vintage for me to kind of find my footing and my voice as a manager and not one of the interns. Um, and I think I still struggle with it, honestly. I still like to do the work a lot of the times and I hope to never really get away from that. Like I don't I don't envision being in a winery that grows too big because I, I enjoy doing the work and being very hands-on. I like smelling the ferments, I like topping I like doing the small things I find enjoyment in those things so um, at that time that was kind of tricky for me to, to to understand that my job was now delegation more than it was actually doing the work um, but with that you learn a new skill set and you actually have an opportunity to you know rather than doing the punch down on every fermenter you can actually go through and taste every fermenter and make decisions on extraction and things like that 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 maybe are more important to to actually crafting a wine and, and developing the textural nuances in a, in a wine. So that was kind of the main takeaway that I that I've started to gain in 2018. So what came next? Uh, so worked 2019 as seller master at Iris as well and kind of my partner was doing sales for Iris um, as well and we had kind of, you know, we had at that point spent 10 years in Eugene between going through college and and graduating and working and she was finishing school those last couple years that I was um, those first couple years I was at Iris and she had since finished and was trying to find what she wanted to do in Australia she found that she really loved the wine industry as well she started working at the cellar doors in Margaret River and found her footing in in sales and um, came back to Eugene and felt that it was you know, maybe the regional sales wasn't her favorite part of the industry. And we started to think about moving north and being a little bit more in the heart of the Willamette Valley, being around a younger crowd of winemakers. Um, you know, the winemaking community, there is a great community down in, in um, Eugene, but it's maybe a little bit older and spread out. There's not as many like people flocking there from around the world to actually be steeped in, in the Willamette Valley culture. Um, so we, we started thinking about it and at that time, you know, we were hungry for something else. And uh, so Iris, you know, that ran its course and a lot of, lot of great times there. And we just decided that it was time to move to to McMinnville and kind of, um, so we moved in January of 2020. My partner actually got a job through our mutual friend who she met at King Estate, AJ McCafferty, who's the hospitality manager here. Um, and she reached out to AJ and was like, hey, I know you're running the tasting room. Do you have any job jobs available? And he said, yeah, yeah, I would love to work with you. And hired her on and we moved up and I kind of left Iris and planned on figuring it out there's plenty of wineries up here I'll go get a job like I just want to learn something and keep evolving my my kind of exposure to different techniques and uh, 
it just so happens, I mean, and then March comes around. I was working at the winemaker studio, kind of helping out a little bit and just trying to meet people and give a hand here and there. And um, But it wasn't anything permanent. And then March came around and COVID hit. And I was like, oh boy, what did I do? What What is, where am I gonna end up now? Like who's hiring more people on right now? So that was a very worrisome time. And then about, I don't know, 15 days into that. I mean, I was like 15 days of sitting on my couch, stuck at home, like stay at home order. And I get a call from John Faulkner, who was uh, the <coughs> assistant, well, he was the director of winemaking operations for Provenage. So uh, the kind of umbrella company that runs Evening Land, Domaine de la Cote, Sandy, and, and Pietro Sassi. Um, and he said, AJ told me that you're looking for a position, uh, a winemaking position, and we have a potential job opening at Evening Land. Would you be interested? And I was like, I mean, absolutely. Like, we, I, I moved up here having tasted with AJ, and I was blown away by the Chardonnay. Like, it was an eye-opening experience. I had some phenomenal Chardonnays that were reminiscent in in um, Margaret River from some of the producers there. And when I came here, I was like, "Whoa, we're doing this here too!" Like people are doing this here. I was I was blown away, and I was infatuated with it. And then, I mean, I still remember sitting on the forklift at Iris, moving stacks of barrels, listening to Sashi on an interview. I forget what podcast, but some podcast interview, and he's talking about, you know, pied-de-couves and all these old school techniques that he employs, and I was just like blown away, like a pied-de-couve that is so genius, like a natural starter culture, like why have I never heard of this before? Why did UC Davis never tell me about this? Like <laughs> what is the secret magic people have? And uh, so when I got that call, I was like, yes, yes, absolutely. Like, when do you want to meet? And um, I met with him a couple of times, went through several interviews, and then Sashi called me and met me at the tasting room for um, for uh, the final interview. And actually, oddly enough, it was the same day that they had to furlough the 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 tasting room staff. So like. On one hand, I was getting a job, and on the other hand, my partner was being laid off for, for a temporary period of time. So it was very bittersweet, but I mean, she was like, she was happy. I mean, it was getting scary, and she was fine with it. She's like, um, you know, it's temporary. We'll come out of this after a couple of weeks, and you'll have a job, and I'll have a job. It'll, it'll work out. And meantime, I get to stay home for a couple of weeks, so like, no big deal. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how how it began with getting it was very serendipitous and like kind of it's about who you know type thing you know i was in the right place at the right time and couldn't be happier so tell me about the role as it was sort of just defined for you in those in the interview process what were you going to be coming in to do and and how has that sort of evolved since you got here it was kind of undefined at at the time of of the interviews. It was kind of an assistant winemaker or an associate winemaker or it was kind of unclear. I was kind of actually confused by, by myself. Um, but but um, it turns out that, that over that period of time that we were interviewing, um, they were making a transition 
from their previous winemaker and they were looking for a new winemaker to come in. Um, so I kind of came on board as an associate winemaker that reported to my you know, boss, the director of winemaking down in California. And I, uh, but it was completely solo, which was a bit shocking. I mean, at first, uh, like I was like, boy, am I ready for this? Like, I didn't think I was interviewing for this. I didn't know what it was going to be this. I didn't know I was going to be working like hundred percent solo. Like it was the middle of COVID. So it kind of worked out, but at the same time, like I would go like two weeks and the only person I would see was like the FedEx guy and we just like <laughs> wave at each other. So it was like a very bizarre stretch there. And, um, but I loved it. Like I, I, like I said, I, like I've always enjoyed the kind of quiet serenity of the cellar, and I enjoy kind of just putting a headphone in, listening to music, or listening to a podcast, and and doing my thing and working and you know climbing barrels. And I, I found it very peaceful, and I really enjoyed it. And it being COVID, anyways, it was like I'm and I'm in a, about as safe as a, of a place as I can be. Um, and then. You know, Harvest 2020 came around, which was a bizarre experience in itself. But there was a, there's actually over by Bjornsson, there's a large like mansion that used to be an Airbnb. It's recently sold, but it used to be an Airbnb and it used to be like incredibly affordable. I don't know, it was kind of a weird setup there, but it used to be really cheap. So Sashi had rented that whole thing out for 2020 to bubble the entire team. And, uh, the whole winemaking team, including Sashi, and it was only a team of three, bubbled up and forest fires hit. And we, we were in that mansion. And I mean, it was a amazing and bizarre and devastating. I mean, so many emotions. It was like, we just needed something to be excited about with everything going on in the world. And then, you know, I remember sitting <clears throat> here on, uh, that uh, Sunday with family and we were looking off in the distance over by Mount Jefferson and you just see this like mushroom cloud of smoke. We're like, wow, that looks big. That's pretty crazy. Didn't think much of it. Next day was um, the holiday and we drive, we go out to Hood River. We like to go out to Hood River and um, we visited High U Wine Farm and went and had pizza at the little white salmon bakery there it's amazing little place and it was filled with smoke like as we were going into Hood River we were just hitting this wall of smoke and then as we left that night it was we were, we were staying in the smoke the smoke was not staying behind in Hood River and by the time we got back to our house where we had left windows open our house was completely filled with smoke we shut everything down and I mean that next morning was one of the craziest things I've ever seen the it it felt like an apocalypse. I was driving through Amity and it was just a wall of black and orange. I mean, I still have pictures of looking out the cellar roll up and it was completely orange, like like a pumpkin orange, like bright orange. I was like, and it was like two o'clock in the afternoon. I, I didn't know what was going on, what was happening. You know, everything felt apocalyptic already with COVID and everything like that. And it was just a bizarre scene and then Shortly after that, we realized the, the trouble we were in with, with the, the impact in the vineyard. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, that dramatically changed the course of harvest, that dramatically changed 
how we had to think about everything. So yeah, it was kind of a, 2020 is a interesting year to think about. It's a nice way to put it, I guess. Interesting yeah. to think about, yes. Yeah. Um, so with that, after kind of all the, all the solitary work and all the sort of preparation for this harvest, what did you kind of salvage from it and what was sort of the plan going forward? Yeah, um, we are fortunate to have a lot of kind of friends, you know, Sashi and Raj especially have a lot of friends around the Napa Valley, Australia, that have been dealing with bushfires and forest fires in the past. And, you know, <laughs> Ted Lemon from Literai had sent an email to some people. I'm, I think a lot of people have heard about this message, but it was essentially saying, don't be too hopeful. Like if you can see it in the vineyards and you can, and it's sitting in it for, you know, at a certain, you know, AQI for too long, like thinking that you can go about things as normal is is your worst enemy at this point. You need to take proactive, you know, measures for it. And Sashi sent that to me and he literally told me, read this every morning before you wake up because hope is your worst enemy at this point. And, and it was, uh, you know, a lot of people took, in the Valley took a lot of offense to it. Like, who's this guy I think he is kind of like, how dare you tell us not to have hope? Like that's a hard thing to hear, especially in 2020, like where hope was everything. But it was not a malicious message. It was it was a very it was a good warning, I think, and we took it to heart. And um, we picked the vineyard as best as we possibly could while keeping our vineyard staff safe. Um, you know, the conditions were not okay for pickers to be to be working um, so when we found windows that felt okay or the AQI dropped or if we could get respirators for for the staff and they were willing you know that they want to they want to pick and see their all their hard work come into the vineyard as well and or into the cellar as well so they were eager to pick out here as well so when we found openings too we tried to pull in as much as we could um, we had picked a small amount of Pinot the first day in the smoke um, and fermented that on the skins to try and promote color. And then a lot of the rest of the Pinot Noir that we brought in went straight into the press and separated the, the skins from the, the juice immediately. Um, we were lucky to have that small amount of, of skin contacted actually red wine because that helped color up our main cuvee that we ended up putting together. But yeah, it was a very light, um, not quite red wine, not quite rosé wine that we made, but it was incredibly vibrant and fresh and textured. And um, yeah, we had a lot of resources that kind of helped us navigate those waters for those nine, 10 days that we were just stuck in smoke trying to figure out what we were working with. Um, I think Chardonnay fared much better. I've had some really stunning 2020 Chardonnays, um, even from Seven Springs, from people like Seth Morgan Long and Andrew Rikers and um, yeah, there's some really great expressions of Chardonnay. I think we we learned a lot about what varietals are more susceptible. I think our Gamay fared pretty well. We were definitely lighter um, with the extraction time, but Gamay and Chardonnay seemed to fare better and Pinot seemed to absorb it all. It, it just seems to be really, really reactive with, with the smoke compounds. Um, it was a vintage of it's weird to say, but like the most technical winemaking I've ever had to do because we were trialing a lot of things. We were, you know, testing products. We were figuring out 
on the fly how to make wine. It was like we never make wine before, kind of like every day we woke up like, all right, what's, what are we doing? What is, you know, we'd be pressing juice or being like, what are we even making with this at sometimes? But we were able to develop a, a vision after we started tasting some of the, the components. And um, yeah, I think we were able to make some very compelling wines, but we were very proactive in saying, Let's get this on the market immediately. Let's get this into our consumers' hands. This is a fun, fresh thing that everybody should drink during the summer and don't plan on cellaring it. Um, I've had a few bottles recently of that wine and it's still very, very aromatic and textured and it's a really nice wine. Um, I'm very proud of that wine because of the difficulties and kind of the intense winemaking that had to go into it. Um, and it's just kind of a, a reminder of a really difficult time and I think that's a beautiful thing about wine is that like it takes you back to a time and place good or bad you know I think there's a, a lot of people seek out bottles of wine from the World War II in the 40s and and you know prize those wines it's a terrible time to have lived through but it's a amazing time capsule of like what was going on and and and, and I think wine is incredibly valuable in that way so tell me about that kind of initial process for you of, of figuring that figuring out what you were doing and how you were going to do it did you feel like you were ready for it in, in, in the end of in the end yeah I mean I don't think there was any choice at that point I was like I'm ready like I was telling Sashi and John like I'm ready let's do this like you know and then I go home and be like I don't know if I'm ready for this you know <laughs> but but um, yeah I think as as I take day by day, I was like, yeah, I know how to do these things. Like this, it's nothing new. Um, there's new techniques, yeah, but I can conceptualize them. I, I kind of, I've studied some of these things before. Like I said, I've listened to a lot of um, podcasts with Sashi, so I kind of knew his ideas and, and what he was about. And John Faulkner was an amazing, amazing resource for me. He was a great mentor. He was very patient and, and um, an incredible teacher. So I had a lot, although they weren't in the building with me, I had a great support system and a great team down south and a very cool part of working for Provenage um, is we travel. So despite 2020 being a difficult vintage to travel. Um, I drove down to California to the Lompoc cellar to Domaine de la Cote and worked harvest with them. And because of how the, the timing of harvest lines up, I can usually go down and work one or two weeks of harvest leading into our harvest up here. So um, I think that is an amazing thing to be able to do because it allows me to actually work, kind of work two harvests in one year while staying in the same hemisphere, which is pretty unique. Um, it also helps me like you know, I think every winemaker kind of deals with that first week of harvest where you're like kind of the first fruit comes in and you kind of go through this period of like, well, do I remember how to do this? Like, what are the calculations? Like trying to remember how things go and then it kind of just goes back on the autopilot, you know? So going down there and working more as like an intern, like you guys need an extra set of hands, like let me just jump in, meet the team and kind of develop a rapport with them. Like I will usually just crash, you know, where the interns are crashing too, just to like become friendly with those guys and, and gals and, and just start to develop a team camaraderie. It's an amazing, amazing thing to be able to do because one it gets my feet wet it gets me thinking back in harvest mode so when I come back up here I'm like ready to go like th that fruit needs to come in now like let's let's start doing this and then also we share interns so 
Um, because of how the harvests lay out, oftentimes they have an abundance of staff down there that are able to send a couple up to me once I start harvesting up here. And then once things start slowing down up there and we really start picking up here, they can send the full, the full intern staff. So with that, me being able to go down there and develop this rapport, when they come up, we already know each other. We already, we've already worked together. We've already kind of figured each other out and kind of know, know what, what we're expecting from each other, um, which is, is really amazing. Um, we didn't have any internationals, which is always a bummer in 2020 and 2021. All, um, but we had a lot of people from all over the, the United States, from Virginia and, and Michigan and some different places. So it's a, it's a very fun experience. As you've been here, tell me about getting to know the place, the vineyard, the, the site here, as well as sort of getting to know the process. You mentioned some kind of same process with some new techniques. So tell me about getting used to that and kind of finding your finding your way here. Yeah, um, the vineyard is, I mean, just an amazing, amazing place. I'm blessed every day to to just be a small part of of this place and the history of this place. It kind of blows my mind. Like I said, at this jump, I was like, am I ready to be a, a winemaker solo, let alone of this place? Like, this is not, it, it was an intense moment. And um, yeah, I mean, days like this, you come out here and you walk around. Today's kind of a joyous day. We're seeing first signs of buds emerging from the vines and it's just a really, amazing place and then you taste the wines as they develop and the fruit that comes in and it's it's awe-inspiring how special it is you know you, even outside the vineyard there's 200 some odd acres here that are owned by the company that are all forested and you wander back into there there's a, an amazing waterfall that you can walk down to at the bottom of the hill here um, it's it's an amazingly diverse and special place. There's birds, there's animals, there's bobcats that come out here at, late at night, and there's elk that roam and burst through fences up at the top of the hill, you know, early in the morning. And there's there's been sightings of bears down at the bottom and kind of that little low area down there. So it's a very special place. I mean, the mountains, you can feel the energy from these mountains. I mean, Mount Hood is showing off right now. And uh, yeah, it's it's an extremely dynamic place that that is just I couldn't be happier to work work with a place like this. As far as technique in the cellar, um, yeah, I mean, Sashi and Raj are like they're amazing in how they they think. They they have like this ability to see into the future and taste things that are so raw and and young and and be able to forecast where they're going so just being a fly on the wall for that and kind of working with them to develop my own ability to do those type of things is is you know priceless um technique wise i think there's a lot of interesting things that they they take from old world techniques um sashi is very much a a traditionalist and likes to do things the way that they used to be done and um, so we I've, I've learned a lot of different techniques I mean Chardonnay especially is like one thing that you know I've been able to hone my craft with and learn a lot from John and Sashi and Raj on that um, and then Pinot Noir you know they're 
at Domaine de la Cote, they're, they're very, very heavy on whole cluster. Um, it's been a progression here. I think in the early days in 2014, when they purchased Evening Land, they were like, we do whole cluster, that's what we're gonna do. And that they used a lot of whole cluster, but they're very fluid. They, they know how to taste wine. They know how to, to forecast where wines are going and what the market wants. And um, they've evolved their, their mindset on that quite a bit, just understanding this vineyard and understanding how the, the wines progress and uh, have pulled back quite a bit on, on whole cluster inclusion. Um, on great vintages, we'll use 33%, like 21. Seemed like a very a, a good percentage. And then in, in 2022, because things were maybe not as phenolically ripe as we would be looking for, and maybe you know green seeds, very green, sappy stems, we opted to, to use uh, nearly 0% whole cluster. And that's a very far cry from their kind of their original mindset with Domaine de la Cote. And so it's just a testament to how fluid they are and how they can, you know, they stay nimble. They, they see what's working and what's not working. They understand that it's a new vineyard to them. And um, they've been amazing to work with because it's just kind of watching them figure it out and being there to kind of help help guide that vision for them. Well, it kind of brings to mind a, a kind of an interesting question you, you, you alluded to earlier. So you obviously have Raj and Sasha, you have these people with with this vision and with this experience and with all of these different places. So where does sort of your personal sort of style vision fit in since you're the one kind of on the ground here every day, uh, sort of guiding the, guiding the vines and guiding the wines? It was kind of the, the through line that I felt when I... I, I knew I was I would love to work for Eveningland. I just didn't know that the opportunity would ever show, um, because I felt like they were making wines that were similar to my style and my my palate. Um, I want to make. You know, my heart lies with wines that have immense amount of energy, freshness, um, elegance. Uh, have that kind of effortless power, um, which I think. Pinot can be, um, and I know when I got into the cellar with Sashi and started really talking about how we're gonna envision making these wines going forward, we were in lockstep with that, and that was a special moment. That was like, from top to bottom, every cuvee matters. You'll, you know, and and the the goal is, you know, some of the techniques that we employ now are very unique. We use a lot of infusion for some of our, our wines, which means no cap manipulation at all. It is purely steeping skins in, in the juice without actually actively extracting. Um, because this site can be very tannic, They're the, the Van Duzer Corridor's direct correlation with the Eola Amity Hills and Seven Springs means we get a lot of wind. And the wind can thicken up the skins quite a bit. And we found that some vintages, right vintages, get really tannic and can be really overpowering at times. And um, in a pursuit of more elegance and finesse, we've, we've pulled back and we've tried to find methods to pull back on extraction, which, I mean, I was, I was like all for. I thought that was amazing. And I've had a lot of really, I mean, no disparagement or no offense to any wines being made in the valley, but uh, there's a lot that are very extracted or very dark and very 
very powerful wines and I've always been more drawn to the ones that are more lithe and, and, and um, elegant and fresh and, and preserving kind of that earlier pick and that preserving that freshness that makes you want to take another sip and another sip that keeps the mouth salivating that keeps you your, your palate engaged and, and pairs with any food really that you can come up with so um, yeah So earlier on you described sort of your your job as a winemaker boiling down to clarification and stabilization. I think that's interesting. So tell me about coming to that understanding and what you feel are sort of the key the key ways in which you do that on a, kind of on an annual basis. Um, yeah, so I think that's been an evolution kind of obviously there is more to winemaking, right? That's a very simplified um, way of explaining it. But um, during harvest, we kind of, you know, we talk about it quite a bit with Sashi and Raj. It's, it's um, Pinot Noir seems to be very, it seems to be made at harvest. Like you're building texture and you're building the wine that you desire to age. Um, Chardonnay is kind of the opposite. You kind of process the fruit and you extract the fruit um, there's many techniques to do in that, but ultimately you're trying to just extract, separate the, the juice. Um, we find that Chardonnay comes in the finishing. The, the what, What's really special about Chardonnay is that in the aging and the finishing, um, that is the kind of the final touches on making your blend, whether that's fining, filtering, sulfur usage, the amount of lees that you keep in barrel, whether it stays in wood, whether it stays in or gets moved to stainless steel, how you're building textures over that elevage and how you're finishing the wine before it goes into bottle seems to make the most difference in Chardonnay in my opinion, in our opinion. Whereas Pinot Noir is definitely more built in the fermenter and then you kind of try to maintain the freshness and the vibrancy through through the aging so that you can get this delicate long chains of, of tannins that kind of are pleasing to the palate and the, it becomes more harmonious. Um, techniques that we use for clarification and preserving freshness I think are key to what we do which is cold cellar temperatures and long elevage for the most part. Um, we do something. We, we we do do a little bit of um, extended maceration but not for because we're using this infusion technique where we're not actively extracting, we can get away with a little bit more um, extended maceration. And that extended maceration is not actually to continue to build texture. It is to allow for clarification in, in, in the uh, tank itself. So when we separate the free run and decouvage the tank for pressing, we get very clear, uh, elegant wine already and which means that we're not and then we put it in a tank allow it to settle for a little while before going to barrel which gives us very clear fresh wine which means we're not getting a lot of reductive characters or or overly building these these off aromas that we're not not quite interested in that can kind of cloud that feeling of vibrancy and freshness um, and with that we get cold cellar temperatures which and 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 i i work fairly hard to preserve natural CO2. Um, cold temperatures allow that to happen um, as well. So preserving the natural CO2 in suspension with the wine gives us both a protecting agent, which allows us to use less sulfur, but also just 
gives it this freshness and when we drive off that CO2 at the very last minute, it preserves that freshness and kind of gives it this really elegant, pretty aromatics. And um, it may slow down the, the aging a little bit, having being in such a CO2 rich environment, but um, we feel that that's, that's beneficial to preserving those bright, fresh aromatics and preser preserving the energy. So tell me about sort of uh, future then here. Uh, obviously, you're, you're, you've been here a few years now. You've actually had a couple of non-2020 harvests now to get an idea for what the potential is here. So as you're looking ahead for your work here, what comes next? Are there things you're looking to try that are different, or is it more of a kind of a narrowing in on what you've already done? Yeah, I think um, a little bit of both. I think, I think as, you know, I kind of spoke to it earlier, like, when I was just starting the journey, I was like opening doors and like you realize there's 10 doors inside that door that you need to open and, and that still continues today. Like every time I open a book and start doing research on one particular thing, it's like another thing pops up and I'm like, well, what's that? And I need to open that door and it just becomes this kind of rabbit hole effect. And I think I'm always trying to stay hungry for, for knowledge and for technique and there's always people pushing the boundaries and trying to develop new techniques and and different ways of thinking about things whether that's in the vineyard or in the cellar um, so i think it is the, the future is in refining what we're currently doing um, but also staying nimble and staying on top of what other people are doing and and trying to learn from our peers and learn from the other people around the valley or around the world that are doing things that maybe we could could employ ourselves. Um, I think Seven Springs will probably, I mean, we are planting, we've planted 17 new acres this last uh, winter and we'll be growing. Um, so we will be producing more Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. No plans at the moment to plant other varietals, although we've had some discussions about it. I think white varietals have a tremendous amount of uh, potential here in the Willamette Valley. The growing season seems to be really perfect to, to retaining freshness, but also getting us the phenolically ripe. Um, we're also planting in between several of the new parcels, um, some fruit trees. Uh, so there may be some cider projects on the horizon or some multi-fruit things that we play with. Um, I know Roger's very into those, those types of wines and, and really excited about those types of things. So I'm hoping that maybe in the future we can develop something like that. But for the short term, I think it's mostly refining what we're currently doing, continuing to stay, you know, lighter on our feet and, you know, adapting to a changing climate and adapting to any challenges that come our way. So tell me about the Oregon wine industry a little bit. Uh, tell me about the um, changes you've seen in the industry what, from, where, from when you for, kind of first saw it to now and kind of what it looks like to you right now. What does the industry look like in 2023? I see, when I, when I was first, so Aaron Lieberman had sent me an article that was basically stating there's a uh, direct correlation between quantifiable pigment and tannin concentration in wine and what a consumer is willing to pay for it. And I think a lot of people read that article and kind of decided that, okay, we pick up color and we pick up tannin, we can demand more price for a bottle. Um, I'm seeing kind of maybe 
a pullback from that, I think, right now. I think the valley is kind of going more into an elegant direction, which I personally am really interested in. I think there's a lot of young, fresh people in the industry here that are bringing new perspectives and have traveled and, and worked harvest all over the world and are bringing um, a lot of interesting perspective. I think there's a really big natural wine kick right now that I think might pull back a little bit because I think there's a lot of maybe not so great wines that are like demanding really high bottle prices that I don't think that'll last forever. Um, and I see Chardonnay really coming in strong to this valley. I think there are producers out there that are making exceptional Chardonnay and I think it's gonna become, I mean, Pinot will always be king here, um, but Chardonnay I think is gonna make a name for itself in the coming years. Um, <clears throat> It's a special grape. It's very malleable. It's very winemaker friendly. And I think um, people are learning how to farm it. People are learning how to work with it. And I think there's, there's a bright future for Chardonnay here. And then there's a lot of very cool vineyards planting very cool varieties. So I see, um, I'm hoping that that continues, that trend continues where we are more open to planting different varietals around here because I think there's a ton of varieties that can adapt to this, this climate and be very successful. What about for you personally? Anything on the horizon for yourself that you're looking forward to inside of wine or out? Uh, yeah. Uh, in the coming years, I would like to develop a label with my partner. I think we've been chatting about that. Small label. I don't know if it's, it's probably more crazy than smart at this point, but... Uh, <laughs> All great ideas are when they Yeah, start. right, exactly. <laughs> I think I've heard Sashi say that it, you'd have to be crazy at this point to, to get into this business, but he's also said that, you know, young people are reckless and that's kind of, you kind of need that in order to do anything special. So, um, yeah, I, th I think we would like to develop a label at some point. And, um, but in the short term, uh, I'm just trying to stay hungry for information and knowledge and continue to chat with the, my peers here in, in the Willamette Valley. And um, I wanna, you know, I've been very uh, focused on cellar and learning winemaking and trying to, trying to become very competent in winemaking that I haven't had as much time in the vineyard. Uh, I would personally like to start uh, exploring viticulture much more and have a much deeper understanding of growing grapes and, and vineyard management and things of that sort. And I mean, I have a, such an incredible team right here with Jessica Cortell and Daniel Lopez and the team here that's been here forever at Seven Springs that they have a tremendous amount of knowledge that I'm just trying to get out here as much as I can to, to pick their brains and, and glean what I can. Last question for you. Um, what are you proudest of so far in your kind of wine accomplishments? Um, really, I, I like I don't look at any particular wine and go like, wow, that was a great achievement or, or but I think primarily it's like the friends that you make during harvest and, and with all the people that you work with from around the world, like those are really special and I think will last the test of time. Um, I'm of course very proud of the wines and, and uh, some of the things I've been able to do with Eveningland and Iris and traveling, but I mean, 
it's very special to meet people from all over the world and it's kind of forge that relationship um, through thick and thin and the, you know harvest is a grind so when you can get somebody to be motivated to come work for you for your wine and like be be excited about what you're doing and then leave and not taste it for another two years or something like that like that's special that's an achievement and and those friendships will last forever so I think that's kind of one of the main things that I think I look back on and I'm like that's the coolest thing that that's happened here is you make a lot of cool friends good people perfect answer uh, all the questions that I have for you uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have anything we didn't we didn't cover that you'd like to cover no I think I've probably blabbered enough if your listeners are still listening at this point they're probably topping or doing inventory or taxes or something something exactly yeah I'd, uh, um, that's everything well, thank you so much really appreciate your time yep. sharing your stories with us sharing your perspectives with us on this gorgeous day on the eve of bud break here in the valley and uh we'll let you off the hook thank you very much thank appreciate you it. thank you for joining us for this edition of the oregon wine history archive podcast and thank you to all our supporters partners donors and interviewees who have helped make our project a success be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.